0: Then they took him and brought him to a meeting meeting of the Areopagaeus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they all mean. All the Antheans and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about about and listening to new ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagaeus and and said, people of at carefully, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations, and they should inhabit the world, the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your very own poets have said, We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, ignorance, but now made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damarius, and a number of others.
1: We've been in a series here at Reality looking at the book of Acts, and for the past couple of weeks, what we've been focusing on is the gospel, what the gospel is and how the gospel changes a person's life. Today we're gonna continue thinking about the gospel, but the question for us today, how do we how do you bring the gospel to the city? How do you as an individual or how do we as a church make the gospel known in our city? To guide us, we're looking at Acts 17. This is one of the great places in all of the Bible to understand how to bring the gospel to the city. Paul is in Athens. Now Athens, ancient Athens, is not that different from modern day London. Ancient Athens was one of the cultural capitals of the world. The ideas and the products that were created and developed in Athens impacted the rest of society. The people who came to Athens were very diverse. Athens was a place that was incredibly pluralistic. There were lots of worldviews and religions and ethnicities represented in that great city. And people came together to make it, to achieve, to learn, to thrive. Ancient Athens is not that different from modern day London. New churches, he's Paul in Acts 17. And he knows as he's traveling around starting new churches, he knows if we can start a church in Athens, if the gospel can take root in that place, it's going to have a huge impact not only in surrounding regions, but ultimately the world. And so Paul here in Acts 17 is very eager to bring the gospel to the city. And by looking at what Paul does here in Acts 17, we get to learn something about how to bring the gospel to London. London is our home. It's the place we live, but it's also one of the world's leading cities. And if the gospel takes root here, as the gospel continues to change this city, it will have an impact on our society and ultimately the world. And so we want to learn from Paul, how do we bring the gospel to London? How do we as a church be on mission To make Jesus known in our city. And so three things I want to show you looking at this passage so that we can be a church that then gospel to London. The first thing we're going to see is where mission starts. Then second, what mission consists of. And then third, how mission happens. So bringing the gospel to our city, being on mission, where it starts, what it consists of, and then last, how this mission can happen. So where does mission start? Mission in the city starts with compassion for the city. We'll never be a church that's eager to bring the gospel to, uh, to this city unless we feel compassion for our city. Paul is here in Athens and Athens at, as an ancient city also as a modern one was pretty impressive. Some of the great buildings and architectural feats of Athens still stand to this day. Maybe some of you have been there and you've seen them. So there is Paul in Athens, he's taking in this grand great city. But Paul wasn't just enamored, he was distressed. Look at the text in verse 16. As Paul's there in Athens, the thins, 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them, his friends in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was so full of idols. And then verse 17, so he reasoned. And that word so is important. Because Paul was distressed to see the city full of idols, he brought the gospel to the city. So where did this mission start? It started with Paul being distressed. Now that word "distress" could also be translated angry. And you say, wait a second, are you telling us to get mad? Kind of. Here's the key. In the Bible, the word distressed or the kind of anger that's being talked about is not being angry at something, it's being angry for something. And there's a world of difference. To be angry at something or to be angry for something are miles apart. You see, when you're angry for something, you're engaged in that, that you love, think about someone that you're close to if you've ever seen them be engaged in an activity or a set of behaviors that are personally destructive to them, that are hurting them, what happens? You get angry. You get mad if you watch somebody that you love doing something that you know isn't good for them. You get upset. You get angry. Why? Because you love them. In that instance, your anger is flowing out of love. And you get angry at anything that threatens the welfare of somebody that you love and care about. And that's the kind of anger that Paul's feeling here in Acts 17. He sees the city is so full of idols, it's filled with idolatry, and he's angry for the people of Athens. His heart is breaking. Why? Because the city's filled with idolatry. As Paul was walking around in the city, he literally saw statues everywhere. And ancient Athens had gods for everything. Gods for sex, gods for power, gods for work, all these idols and the ocean. Gods everywhere. And so Paul's looking around and he's seeing all these idols and these statues and he's getting distressed. He's getting angry for a city filled with idols. What's an idol? Well, an idol can be a statue, but actually an idol is much more subtle and profound than that an idol is a god substitute an idol is anything that takes the place that god the real god is supposed to have in a person's life an idol can be something like a statue but much more often than not an idol is anything in your life even good things that become ultimate things Things that take the place that only God should have in our life. And so you know something has become an idol. You know something has become a counterfeit God in your life when you're looking to something to give you meaning and purpose and acceptance, a sense that you matter and that you belong. So for example, career. One of the reasons that people come to London is to have a job. It's to have a career. Now, are careers and jobs important? Absolutely. Absolutely. But sometimes a job or a career doesn't just become important, it becomes an idol. And one way that you can ask yourself with a diagnostic question, how do I know if something's become an idol in my life? Think about it this way. Let's think about your career. You love your career, you enjoy your career, that's important. But if you lost your job, or if your career path was thwarted, how would you feel? If you felt sad, if you were grieved, that would make sense. But if you were driven to despair, if you felt like without this job, I'm nothing, without this career opportunity, my life has no meaning, then it's very possible that that is no longer just a job for you, that's an idol. It's something that you're looking to to get a sense of meaning and acceptance and worth in your life. And friends, at least Athens was full of idols and so is London. At least in Athens they had the, they were overt about it they put statues up but for us our idols are in our hearts and they're buried down deep but whether it's career it could be image and the way that you look it could be relationships friendships romance it could be your morality I obey the rules I'm a good person it could be religion I show up at church God owes me it can be family All of those things are good, but they can become ultimate things and idols and therefore destructive. Now, why is it that Paul, as he sees this city filled with idols, why is he grieved? Why is he feeling angry? Well, it's because he loves the people in the city. And he knows that idols are counterfeit gods. But you know what a good counterfeit does? It tricks you because it looks like the real thing. But in the end, it rips you off. In the end, it leaves you empty. In the end, it leaves you hanging. And Paul's looking at this city and he's watching people turn good things into God things and his heart breaks because he knows it's just a matter of time before their hearts are crushed. Would to God that we as people, we as a church, would see in London a city filled with idols and therefore have a heart that breaks for the people of this city. The most loving thing you can do for another person is help them see the folly of idolatry. That's what Paul, he was angry because he saw a city filled with idols. But some of you at this point say, wait a second. Okay, fine. You believe in Christianity, that's great. But why should I care about what other people believe? Why should I tell anyone else that they're serving or believing in the wrong thing? Because idols will always crush the hearts of their worshipers. Idols will eat you alive. Let me give you two quotes to make this point. We as a church, we're never gonna bring the gospel to our city unless we love this city so much that we're willing to confront the idols of our is from David and expose them as counterfeits. Two quotes to make this point. The first is from David Foster Wallace. This, by the way, was not a Christian, not someone who was writing from a perspective of faith, but he saw idolatry in our culture. And listen to how powerfully he described the way idols eat you alive. He says this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Really, the only choice you get is what you worship. He goes on. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap your meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You'll never have sexual allure are enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need even more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They're the default settings of our heart. Powerful. What's he saying? This person looking at the idols of our culture recognized this profound biblical truth, your idols will eat you alive. They are not big enough to give you a sense of meaning and purpose and wholeness and life. And so whenever we take them into ultimate things, what we're setting ourselves up for is heartbreak because idols always crush the hearts of their worshipers and they can't but do that because only God is able to fill that void that we're trying to fill with everything else. Second quote, this from Saint Augustine. Augustine was a fourth century Christian pastor and leader and he has a spot in one of his most famous books where he says this, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. God made you for himself, and your heart will be restless until it rests in God. Let me illustrate what that means, because you say, I I get that kind of. Well, think about it this way. Let's say I came over to your flat and you were hanging a shelf, and you needed a hammer to nail in a nail, but you didn't have a hammer. Because this is London, and who has any hardware, right? So I come over, and you're trying to nail something, in, you don't have a hammer. And I say, oh, that's no problem. Him the nail with And you take my watch, and you say, thanks, that's really generous. And you bang the nail with my watch. What's going to happen? My watch is going to shatter. And you and I are standing there, and my watch is shattered. And we say, oh, geez, that wasn't a very good watch. How foolish would we be if we thought that way? Why? Because I watch was never made to hammer in a nail and when you use it to do that the only thing that can happen is it will break what you and I are doing with our whole lives what people in this city are doing all the time is trying to fill a hole in their heart with things that were never made to fill that hole in the first place and the only thing that can happen when you take romance or career or money or power or religion or morality and you try to fill the God-shaped hole in your heart, the only thing that can happen is your heart will be crushed. That's, those things are not big enough for that. Only God is. And so what Augustine, David Foster Wallace mentioned, what Paul experienced was a heart that was broken as he saw a city filled with idols. Do you see it? Do we see our city filled with idolatry? Do we see our own hearts as idol making factories? That's where mission starts. A distressed heart that was angry for the city. But that leads now to ask the question well, what did mission consist of? Here is Paul in Athens. His heart is grieved. He's distressed for the city. So, what does he do? He brings the gospel to the city. Now, Acts 17, we could spend weeks in this passage. It's an example of brilliance in the art of persuasion. It's a stunning, stunning example of how to persuade a skeptical audience. We don't have a lot of time to look at all the things that are here. But I just want to show you two things about Paul's approach here in Acts 17 that will help us if we're going to be a church that brings the gospel to London. Two things. First, let's look at the places that Paul shares, the. That Paul starts. Go with me to verse 17. In verse 17, we see that Paul starts by reasoning in the synagogue. The synagogue is a house of worship. It's kind of like this. It's a place where people came with spiritual curiosity. So one place that Paul's making the gospel known is in the synagogue, the places where people have spiritual questions. The second place, though, as verse 17 goes on, is Paul was in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, what's the marketplace? That's the hub of life in Athens. That's the place where people built friendships. They bought stuff. They exchanged ideas. It's where they live life. So in London, the marketplace is pubs and cafes and gyms, Barber barbershops. I've been to one, you know, once or twice. It was fun. Uh, it's the gyms that you go to. It's the third spaces that you live your life in. It's in the city. And then third, the Areopagus marketplace. But now look, Paul goes down verse 19 to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is the place where the city's intellectual elites gathered. This is the universities of the town. This is the opinion pages of our newspapers. These are the people who are writing big, thick books about big ideas. Those are all the places that Paul's going to share the gospel. In other words, Paul is in the city. He's not expecting people to come to him. He's bringing the gospel to them. He's living out his faith publicly in every part of the city, wherever he goes. Here's what you need to see. (laughs) you're already in the city. You're already going to pubs and cafes and gyms. You're already commuting and going to Borough or Broadway or Camden Market. You're already in the city. But are you bringing your faith with you? Are you being public with your faith in those places? Making Jesus known in ways that people in those places can understand. You see, Paul was in the city, but he brought his faith with him as he went into the city. Are we doing the same? Paul's approach to bring in the gospel to Athens was to get into Athens and then to make the gospel known however he could. Look at the places Paul went. But second, as we think about how Paul brought the gospel to Athens, notice also that Paul's whole desire was to show the Athenians how the gospel fulfilled the deepest longings of their heart. And this is really what evangelism is. It's showing people how the truth of Jesus meets their heart's deepest longings. Look with me, if you would, at verse 23. In verse 23, Paul's speaking now in the Areopagus. He's talking to the leaders of the city. And he says in verse 23, look, I I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are... This is the very thing that you worship. And that is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This is really stunning. Stay with me as I unpack it. Paul's in Athens and there were places in Athens where literally there were whole streets and on either side there were statues to idols. So Paul's walking down one of these streets and as he's walking, he looks and he sees, Ah, yes, this is the God of sexuality, okay? This is the God of nations. This is the God of money. This is the God of power. This is the God of rain. This is the God of food. And as he's walking along, he notices this God doesn't have a name. This is the altar to the unknown God. And here's what Paul realizes. What's happening in Athens? These people truly want to know the divine. They want to worship appropriately. But they're so afraid of getting it wrong that in their superstition, they actually make an altar to an unknown God. They're afraid of missing one. And they make a God that they don't even know who it's for. But just to say, in case we forgot, it, and he's sorry, but here you are. And Paul sees that. And he knows, look, they're going about it in the wrong way. But their hearts are longing for a good thing. They want to know the divine. They want to worship appropriately. And Paul says, that's my way in. And what he does here in this chapter, it's brilliant, is he says, look, your longings are in the right place, but you're going about it in all the wrong ways. So let me show you how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the creator God, actually fulfills and satisfies those deep longings of your heart. And that's what Paul does in these verses. That's what he does in his speech to the leaders of the city. Paul is showing the Athenians that the deep longings of their heart can only find fulfillment in Jesus. And friends, that's what it means to bring the gospel to the city. It means to show people that the narrative lines of their life can only find a in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to bring the gospel to London. It's to say romance is good. Your image matters. Making money, very important. Having a family, getting married, awesome. And none of those things can fill the deep hole in your heart. Because St. Augustine was right. God made you for himself and your heart won't rest until it rests in him. And once you see that, once you've experienced that, you're able then to go out and say to others, this is how the gospel can bring healing and fulfillment in your life. You see, that's what Paul was doing. He was showing people how the deep longings of their heart could only find a happy ending in Jesus Christ. That's what his mission consisted of, getting into the city and showing how the gospel fulfilled the longings of the people in the city. So finally, the last question for us today is this, well, how will it happen? How will you, how will we as a church Bring the gospel to our gospel love. We going to, like Paul, both be distressed but also move forward with gospel love. Here's the answer. The only way that you're going to be able to expose the counterfeit, to expose the idols, is if you had that idol exposed in your own heart. The only way that you're going to be able to say to the city, this is how you can have a happy ending in Jesus, is if you've begun to experience that yourself. The only way to have compassion for the city is to see the compassion of Jesus Christ for you. You see, it's not just a city that's full of idols, but your heart is filled with idols. Your heart is, my heart is an idol-making factory. We're all constantly making counterfeit gods, looking for something to bring healing and wholeness in our life. And when God looks at you, when he looks at me and sees our hearts as idol-making factories, what he feels more than anything is compassion. He's not angry. He's angry for you. And the best illustration of this in all the Bible is in Jeremiah chapter 2. Just look it up later. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, here's what God says. He's looking at his people. By the way, at that time, filled with idolatry. Actually, let me read the verses to you. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. Powerful picture. God looking at his people, and here's what he says. My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. And they have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Here's what God's saying. I'm angry for my people. Why? Because in their hearts, this is what they're doing. The image that God uses is digging a cistern. Now, in ancient times, if you didn't live near a river, you had to build cisterns. These are big holes in the ground. So that when rain fell, the big holes would catch the water. And then you'd have water to cook. And that leaked whatever you needed the water for. But a broken cistern was a cistern that leaked. So when the rain came and it went into your cistern, it didn't stay there. It was gone. And God says, that's useless. That, That does nothing for you. And that's what idolatry is like. The things that you're looking to for meaning and purpose, they're like broken cisterns that can hold no water. And when God sees that, his heart is distressed for us. So what did he do? He didn't just wallow in his distress, but he came in the person of Jesus Christ and died on the cross. And Jesus' death on the cross, which we're going to celebrate in just a minute as we come to the Lord's table, Jesus' death does what? It takes the judgment that our idolatry deserved. And it says to us, in place of a broken cistern that can hold no water, you can have a spring of living water in your heart as you know Jesus Christ. And you experience the wholeness and the just dist- comes from a relationship with him. That's what Jesus did. He wasn't just distressed for you. He died for you. And that's what we celebrate every time we hold the bread and the cup in our hand. So, how do we respond? How are we going to be a church that's passionate about bringing the gospel to our city? It starts right here and right now. With repentance. What's Repentance. Repentance is not just changing bad behavior. Oh, I shouldn't do that anymore, I'll stop. Repentance is saying to God, all my life I've been trying to fill a broken cistern and I surrender and I need you to be the spring of living water in my heart. I need a relationship with you. I need to know that my heart will be restless until it rests in you and it's resting in him. It's resting in what Jesus has accomplished. It's resting in what Jesus has done. That's repentance. It's turning from God for, excuse me, from idols to the living God. And that's the invitation for all of us this morning. As for the way let's do that now as we pray and prepare. Our God, thank you so much for the ways in which you've met us in Acts seventeen. And Lord, we confess, as we seek to love and serve our city, we confess that there are idols in our hearts too. There's too many idols that have robbed us and ripped us off. So this morning, we pray, we beg you that you would expose the counterfeit, that you would free us from broken cisterns that hold no water. And Lord, that you would heal us, that you would change us, that you would make Jesus's grace real to us today and that we would encounter you, our heart's deep gladness. We pray all this together doing so in Jesus' name, amen.